Bengt Sunkler meant to write an academic book. It was the 1940s, and Sunkler, a Swedish missionary and amateur ethnographer, was living in South Africa. During his years in the country, he had begun doing field research into the development of African independent churches. He compiled that research into a book called Bantu Prophets in South Africa. The book explained the beliefs, practices, and history of these African churches. It was written in English for a white European audience. But books can have a life of their own. The more I did research on Sunkla and then actually became interested in doing research on the book itself, I realized that there was, there was a, a very intriguing, um, what I call an other life to the book and to the, the, the kind of history of how it was written. Um, which is that there was on the one hand its circulation and reception in academic circles where it became one of the most well-respected texts on African Christianity. It still is today. You still see it on reading lists um, across the world in religious studies classes, history classes, anthropology classes. It's kind of the authoritative text. But I started uncovering evidence that the book had another life. It had another readership. It had another circulation and it had another reception. And this was actually amongst um, the ministers and the leaders of these churches themselves. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode of the show, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For today's episode, I sat down with Professor Joel Cabrita to discuss Bantu prophets in South Africa. My name is Joelle Cabrita. I teach history uh, at Stanford University, and I'm a historian of Southern Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I have a particular interest in the history of Christianity in the region. Bantu Prophets in South Africa was published in 1948. It was written by a Swedish Lutheran missionary who worked in South Africa um, as a missionary in the 1930s and 40s called Bengt Sunkler. And after his time in South Africa, he went on to other missionary posts in East Africa, and then he returned to Sweden, where he lived out his days as, a, as an academic and a kind of missiologist. Bengt Sunkler was born in Sweden in 1908. He moved to South Africa in the mid-1930s with his wife, a South African woman who he had met and married in Sweden. He did pastoral work and religious education throughout the 1930s and 40s and became fluent in the Zulu language. He wrote Bantu Prophets in South Africa in 1948. The term Bantu refers to native Africans who speak Bantu languages. There are hundreds. The word was coined by German linguist Wilhelm Bleek in the late 1850s. By the 1920s, it had replaced the word native to refer to black Africans. The book is basically, um, was the first study that charted the explosion of the so-called African independent churches in Southern Africa. So these were African Christians who broke away from missionary oversight and formed their own churches um, that were kind of um, intentionally reflecting what they thought was a more African way of being Christian. So a great emphasis on healing, on prophecy, demonology, exorcisms, um, and kind of created a huge flurry and scare amongst missionary circles that, you know, all their beloved converts were kind of um, betraying them and leaving the ranks and starting these kind of new rival churches. Christianity arrived in South Africa in 1652, when the Dutch first settled what is today Cape Town. The first Christian missionary group in the region was the Moravian Brethren, led by Georg Schmidt from what is today the Czech Republic. He started converting the local Khoi Khoi tribe in 1737 
but was forced by the Dutch to leave South Africa in 1744 because he had baptized five African slaves. And according to the Dutch Reformed Church, baptized Christians had to be free. The Moravian Brethren left South Africa in 1744, but returned almost 50 years later, in 1792. For the next three decades, missionaries of varying Christian denominations from England, Scotland, France, United States, and the Netherlands came to the area to spread Christianity. By the mid-19th century, many European denominations had established branch missions in South Africa. They converted lots of native Africans, but converts didn't always stay with their churches. Some began to split off and form new, African-run, independent churches, including the Zion Christian Church and the Nazareth Baptist Church. They were these kind of very um, deliberate attempts to craft a more indigenous, authentically African form of Christianity. In fact, their influences were across the Atlantic in a number of North American Pentecostal and evangelical, mainly faith-healing churches that sent missionaries to Southern Africa in the early 20th century. The Pentecostal missionaries were some of the last to reach South Africa, arriving in the late 19th century. Their beliefs were somewhat different from the missionaries who came before them. These Pentecostal Christians believed that God gave people the power to heal the sick and speak in tongues, and incorporated song and dance into their services. In certain ways, it was more similar to the native African religions, and that made it easy for Africans to adopt. So it was this kind of repertoire of Christian theology, you know, that, that stressed the health of the body um, as part of the work of salvation, that, you know, how could you really be saved if you were suffering physically, that the health of the soul and the body were completely intertwined, um, that really kind of got picked up and appropriated by many, many, you know, tens of thousands of Africans in the beginning of the 20th century, and then kind of turned against missionaries as a way of saying, you're not offering us um, these kind of incredibly compelling faith healing teachings and we're going to break away from you and kind of form churches where that is really given center stage. Pentecostalism was a pretty new form of Christianity. It had emerged in the United States in the 19th century and struggled to be recognized as a legitimate denomination by more established Christian churches. So the Pentecostal missionaries were always sort of quite a marginal um, fringe element. They were never kind of mainstream so it, it, I think that also has to be remembered, you know, this was as much a kind of Christian reform movement as it was a political movement, that their preoccupations were theological, that they really cared about theology, they really cared about issues of salvation, how bodily health, how sickness were kind of tied up in your redemption as a Christian. In a way, it should have been no surprise to the missionaries that these new African independent churches began to pop up. The African church leaders were also interested in reform, they wanted a church that worked for them. In Bantu prophets in South Africa, Sinclair described African Christianity, the beliefs of African church members, the impact of missionaries, and the development and evolution of African churches. But he also charted the history of the South African governments, starting before the Union of South Africa in 1908. He was really the first missionary to try to do a more um, systematically social scientific study of these churches and to ask questions about, you know, what was really going on here and in what way um, did the oppressive racial context of South Africa at, in the mid-20th century, in what way did that feed into African Christians' desire for autonomy in the religious sphere? So kind of a, a, a very sort of social scientific way of trying to contextualize what was happening in these churches in, in the broader context of... Um, South Africa is a country that was increasingly becoming more entrenched in racist legislation. 
Racial tensions began with the arrival of the Dutch. In 1652, the Dutch navigator Jan van Riebeek arrived in what is today Cape Town and established a Dutch colony. He was instructed by the Dutch East India Company to set up a refueling station for European trade ships traveling east to India and other parts of Asia. When he arrived, he forced the native Africans to work as slaves in the colony. At this time, the British were also trading with Asia and had to pass the Cape Colony on their way east. They battled the Dutch for control of the colony and won. By 1806, the Cape was a British territory. For the next hundred or so years, the Dutch and British each expanded their settlements, competing for land and resources across South Africa. Eventually, in addition to the Cape Colony, the British established three more major colonies across the region. In 1833, the United Kingdom passed the Slavery Abolition Act, abolishing slavery throughout the British Empire. In theory, this meant that black and white people in South Africa would be more equal. But that's not what happened. Instead of freeing African slaves, the South African legislators changed the status of slaves to indentured laborers. The name was different, but the reality was the same. And things only got worse from there. Throughout the 19th century, the British colonies in South Africa continued to limit the freedom of the non-white population. They restricted or denied access to land, money, education, and voting rights. In 1910, the four colonies gained their independence from Britain and were combined to form the Union of South Africa. Four years later, the National Party was founded. They were originally an ethnic nationalist party, which promoted the interests of Afrikaners, white South Africans who are descended from the Dutch. They wanted to make sure the country's white minority stayed in power, politically, socially, and economically. In the 1948 election, the National Party came to power, and leaders began to implement a system of legal segregation called apartheid. The Population Registration Act of 1950 separated people into four race categories, white, black, coloreds, or mixed race, and Indian. White citizens had the highest status, and then, in descending order, came Indians, coloreds, and black Africans. Only white citizens were allowed to vote, and many spaces were labeled as white only. White people were in the minority, but the National Party found a way around that. They forced Native Africans to move to reservations called Bantustans, and stripped Africans of their South African citizenship. In this kind of um, context whereby African existence was becoming more and more compartmentalized and circumscribed to certain kind of areas, black churches came under huge threat from the government. The colonial state, and then the apartheid state, were nervous about African-led churches. They saw, you know, huge numbers of people, hundreds of thousands, then millions by after the 1960s, belonging to these entirely African-led organizations, completely anonymous, autonomous of any um, missionary oversight. And they, they panicked. They assumed that the motive had to be subversive. The government believed these churches were secretly political organizations and wanted to shut them down. So church leaders turned to Sinclair. So for many of these um, African church leaders, whom Sinclair calls Bantu prophets, um, this book became kind of like a, a legitimizing manual. Um, uh, it was a text that they would take to the local official and government, the magistrate, or what was called then the native commissioner, 
And when they were kind of mounting their plea or their argument for why their church should be allowed to continue to exist legally and have certain rights and privileges, um, they would procure a copy of this book and they would submit it as part of their application to the local magistrate or official um, and say, look, we're, we're, we're a valid African expression of Christianity. Um, we're not subversive. We have no political intent. Um, Professor Sunkler, who you know is world-renowned, has written about us. Um, and, and, and one of the kind of distinguishing features of the book is at the end there's a almost 40 to 50 page appendix of all of the independent churches that were active in South Africa at that time. There were thousands of them. Um, and this was kind of an authoritative list that Sinclair compiled when he did his research in the 40s. And so many leaders of these churches would point to their place on the list. They'd find their name in the list of, you know, over 3,000 churches that existed in the 40s and, and point out to the local magistrate that that, that they, they were legitimate, they deserved to exist, they, they deserved certain rights and recognition because they'd been written about by Sinclair. So it's a story about canonization and authority. I think so. And I, th- I think it's a story about how for a religious group that is, you know, struggling to exist and to assert its right to exist, its, it's sort of textual presence becomes really significant. Um, it's a way of sort of taking up space in the world, and particularly in the context of apartheid, which, which was ultimately a documentary regime. You know, a lot of people have written about this, that, you know, apartheid made every African or, or non-white carry a passbook, a form of documentary identification. Um, any any movement, any anything that you wanted to do, you had to procure the relevant piece of paperwork and then show it to any official who stopped you or challenged you. So the way in which the apartheid state tried to kind of regulate and suppress you know, Africans' existence and freedom of movement was was all through text and documentation and paper and bureaucracy. So in a, in a way, the, the African Christians whom Sunkler wrote about were kind of taking the weapons of the state and turning it against themselves and saying, you know, you want paperwork? Okay, here's a book. <laughs> you know, I'll, we'll beat you at your own game. Um, so, so that's kind of one of the stories about the book that, that kind of tends not to really get told very much. And people just focus on its, its official life um, as an academic text. And, you know, kind of in general and actually branching out from this book, um, I've certainly noticed with, with a lot of books, particularly on religion in South Africa, which is that they, they tend to be taken up by the communities who are being written about and put to uses in ways that the academic perhaps never foresaw. So for example, um, I wrote a book on one of the largest independent churches in South Africa, um, which is going through a very contentious leadership dispute um, where it's broken into about five sections, each claiming that they are the true leader of the church. Um, And it's something that I talk about quite a bit in my book. I talk about kind of the history of this dispute, how these factions arose. A couple of years ago, I was just Googling something and I found huge chunks of my book extracted from, you know, the context that I'd presented them in and sort of inserted into this internet polemic on behalf of one faction of the church. And so they had identified my material, mobilized it, and deployed it in the context of this ongoing church feud. Like Sunkler, Professor Cabrita had one impact in mind, an academic one. But the academic impact and the real world impact can't be separated that easily. It's very hard to demarcate kind of, you know, academic and popular books, I think, is, is something that I'm, I'm really interested in, that your, your readerships are kind of unpredictable. And the things that we write about as academics, they concern ordinary people going about their business. So, of course, our research is going to be seized upon and kind of put to use in new contexts that we didn't anticipate. 
Um, and it was it was kind of only after, you know, decades really of repeated evidence that really these churches were actually quite apolitical, that they said, you know, rend unto Caesar what is Caesar's and just get on with the business of kind of preparing for the world to come, um, that they kind of calmed down about these churches. The African churches could continue to practice, thanks to Sunkler. Sunkler's analysis um, did really portray these churches as kind of quite apolitical, quite disengaged from, you know, kind of material concerns. You know, the idea that in focusing on the healing of the body, you kind of create an opium of the masses. You're detracting from the broader structural conditions that are making people's life so hard and that you sort of individualize the cause of suffering in, in the sick body. So he really did cast these organizations as essentially disinterested in politics, which, of course, was music to the ears of um, colonial and apartheid officials. The African church leaders used this book to prove that they should exist. But the white government officials saw a use for it as well. I've got archival documents where, um, you know, kind of these Afrikaner apartheid administrators refer to this as a manual. You know, it's, it's their textbook for understanding this whole mysterious realm of African Christianity. Um, the apartheid government actually created a, um, a, a government training um, theological seminary for African ministers where, you know, th- they would be taught you know, in the way that the state thought fitting for African ministers, by which you can read sort of um, definitely kind of third grade education. And this was one of the official textbooks that they put on the syllabus, because for them, this really was this kind of authoritative account of a sort of reassuringly apolitical world of, you know, strange, strange, exotic Bantu prophets who were just kind of interested in healing and had no interest in overthrowing the state or any kind of subversive intent. Of course, the reality was much more complicated than that. And there absolutely were figures within this world of independent churches who were politically motivated. But that's not what Sinclair was looking for. That's what, not what the government kind of wanted to see. So it sort of became a perfect collaboration between his book and an official apartheid policy on these churches at the time. I can't think of another work of scholarship that seems to play such a significant role in a state understanding uh, an important social movement Mm. as well as explaining the social movement to themselves Mm. the people involved in it Mm. i mean it's kind of extraordinary that it was a it was a text to to kind of live with Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it um and that it was kind of all all sides of this complex encounter were using this text you know this just this wasn't just being used by kind of white rulers to suppress Africans. This was also being used by Africans themselves to sort of argue and broker for better privileges with the white government. Um, And then it was also being used by Sinclair to build his career as an international scholar who basically kind of dined off this book for the next 50 years, 60 years until his death. I mean, this was really the most famous thing that he wrote, although he did go on to write other things. Um, And so, you know, my suspicion is these kinds of alternative histories of academic books are are everywhere you know my suspicion is that this story isn't unique um but i i just think a lot of the time we kind of create to my mind quite false distinctions between you know our subject matters academics the world out there and then kind of the books that we write about the world out there and we you know, we, we don't think perhaps as much as we should about how our books kind of get implicated in the world out there and that our research subjects kind of um, draw upon our research in, you know, completely unexpected, unpredictable ways. And that 
you know, we, not even our books only, but we as academics get kind of drawn into the lives of the people that we're studying. And, and that is a pattern that I've just seen repeatedly, not only with my own work, but Sunkler's work, and also the work of colleagues who, who are kind of researching similar things in Southern Africa. So my, my kind of tentative guess would be that these, these kinds of, you know, complex overlapping readerships that take up books and use them in, you know, sort of sometimes seemingly contradictory ways. I, I'm guessing it's probably not just this book, you know, kind of a broader pattern that you can see. Bantu Prophets of South Africa had several huge impacts. It was a foundational academic work, but it also played a critical role in keeping African independent churches active during a repressive regime. This wasn't the impact Sunkler intended when he set out to write the book, but once it was published, the impact wasn't up to him. It was the readers who made the difference. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. If you're looking for another great podcast for book nerds, check out Borrowed from Brooklyn Public Library. It's a narrative podcast about superhero librarians, Brooklyn neighborhood stories, and what it means to be a free, democratic space in a changing world. Just search for Borrowed in your podcast app of choice or on the web at bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts.